What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey everyone. Today I'd like to introduce you to a show that I think you're really going to enjoy. If you like history and a compelling account of past events, as I'm sure most of you do since you're listening to this podcast, then I highly recommend The Saga of World War II. The saga is a chronological account of the Second World War that takes you from the causes of the war through its most pivotal events in easy-to-digest 25-30 to minute episodes. I've been listening while I do chores around the house to keep my brain nice and stimulated, so if this sounds like something you'd be into, just search The Saga of World War II wherever you get your podcasts. Michael's a big history buff, as you guys know, and he's been hooked We highly recommend this show, and we hope you'll give it a shot. It's available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and all podcast streaming platforms. And stay tuned for their promotion at the end of our podcast. Hello there, fellow flyers. Welcome to the Plane Crash Podcast. This is your captain of the podcast, Michael Bauer. Today is the 26th installment of PCPC. We're going to be taking a close look at Qantas Flight 72, a scheduled flight from Singapore to Perth on October 7th, 2008. We have a secret interview lined up for the show today that I know you're all going to find immensely interesting, so stay tuned in for that. Because today's episode is so in-depth, we are breaking the show up into two parts. So today is part one. A few days from now, we will release part two. If you want to listen to it all at the same time, just wait a few days till the second part comes out and then binge both to your heart's content. Thank you to our Patreon crew for the constant, unwavering support. The world of PCPC stays afloat because of your thoughtful generosity. If any of you out there are interested in episode previews, nominating new flights you think we should cover, or simply making a contribution to a podcast that you enjoy listening to, visit patreon.com forward slash plane crash pod. That's patreon.com forward slash plane crash pod. Thanks again, Patreon peeps. On the show today, we are joined by a real estate tycoon that also happens to be the current Miss Universe. Please welcome to the show, Miss Tess Andrade. <laughs> Hi, Michael. How's it going? Good. So it's late June 2020. 
We're four months deep into quarantine. Everything going okay in your world? Yeah, I mean, more of the same. Just trying to keep my head up and my spirits high. Yeah. Have good days, you have bad days, but you just keep battling along because nothing's going to keep you down, right? Exactly, yeah. I can't believe it's gone on this long, but if you told me we would have a pandemic on our hands uh, a year ago, I wouldn't have believed you. Yeah, well... I would never have probably said that to you. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, you've been known to tell lies. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true. That, I can't argue with that. Today, we are doing a Qantas flight. Qantas is an Australian airline. Tess, have you ever been to Australia? Any desire to go to Australia? Sadly, no. I've never been, Michael. But I, yeah, I'd love to go. I'd love to get uh, inside a, a kangaroo's pouch one of these days. Sounds comforting. Sounds comforting. <laughs> I, I don't know if you knew this. I lived in Australia for six months in the town of Newcastle, which is about two hours north of Sydney. I went to a university there. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Yeah. I lived in a little neighborhood called Merriweather, surfed. It was great. I liked being down there. Had you surfed before you came or did you learn on the... I had to learn. I mean, I wouldn't call what I did surfing. It was mostly me just like swimming around. But (laughs) to 20-year-old Michael Bauer was a lot of fun. Well, Tess, American Airlines announced a few days ago that starting on July 1st, they will be booking planes to full capacity again, despite the rising number of coronavirus cases across the United States. American released a statement last Friday saying, as more people continue to travel, customers may notice that flights are booked to capacity starting July 1st. American will continue to notify customers and allow them to move to more open flights when available, all without incurring any cost. An American Airlines spokesman said, We believe it is safe to go back to our normal capacity. United Airlines has already started booking full flights. United CEO Scott Kirby has said, Airlines don't have social distancing. We're not going to be six feet apart, but an airplane environment is incredibly safe. Delta's capping their capacity at 50 to 60% until September 30th and is blocking the sale of middle seats. Southwest Airlines has a cap of only selling 66% of their seats until September 30th. JetBlue is currently blocking the sale of middle seats until July 31st. During a discussion on the economics of the airline industry, a JetBlue chief executive commented recently that airlines have a break-even point at around 75 to 80% capacity. So if they don't sell over 75 to 80% of their seats, they don't make any money. So it seems like domestic airlines in the United States are going about filling up their planes in a very different manner from airline to airline. What do you think, Tess? Who do you think is going about it the right way? Who's going about it the wrong way? Well, Michael, I mean, obviously there's no how-to manual on how to reopen the economy. We're all kind of just doing the best that we can right now. That's a great point. Um, but I think it's a risky move. I think that to me, the optics of that kind of show that American might be prioritizing profit over the safety of their passengers. Mm -hmm. So I I personally wouldn't feel comfortable flying on that type of flight. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm sure there are other people that would, I would personally seek out an airline that is going to take passenger safety into account during these times. Yeah, obviously, I personally feel like I'm just the host of a podcast. And I'm sure there's airline executives more knowledgeable than me. But I kind of think filling planes to capacity during a pandemic, when cases are on the rise, is not a good thing for our society. I think if airlines could put a 60% cap on flights and charge more for flights, that seems like it makes sense to me. I don't know too many people out there right now that would say, hey, I'm going to choose a cheaper flight that's completely full than pay for a ticket that's, you know, 33% higher in cost. 
but you at least have the peace of mind knowing you're not sitting on top of somebody else during a pandemic. Right. Yeah. I mean, I totally understand the thinking behind, you know, we're breaking even and we need to start making money again. Mm-hmm. Um, I have airline stocks, so I, you know, I understand that as a shareholder. Um, but I think that we all have to sacrifice right now to keep each other safe. And I think we'll see greater rewards in the long term if we make those sacrifices now and, and take those hits now. Yeah, I think they should always be thinking long term, not short term. Exactly. Well, we'll keep you up to date on the developments in the ever-changing airline policies as they roll in. Today's show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What is BetterHelp? BetterHelp is the world's largest online counseling service. It's 21st century counseling for a 21st century world. What Uber is to car rides, BetterHelp is to therapy. If you're looking for an objective, intelligent, qualified professional to talk out any troubles you've been going through, or make sure you're practicing healthy mental habits, BetterHelp can help you. You can message your therapist 24 hours a day, and you can set up online video sessions each week. BetterHelp works outside the 9 to 5 hours of traditional therapy, so you can work according to your unique schedule and your needs. Now is the perfect time to participate in online therapy. We're all spending a lot of time at home, and what better way to spend that time than improving your mental health with the assistance of BetterHelp? For 10% off your first month, check out betterhelp.com forward slash plane crash pod. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, betterhelp.com forward slash plane crash pod. And thank you to BetterHelp. Thank you, BetterHelp. And when you help BetterHelp, you're helping us too. We started this podcast back in February 2019 because we've always been nervous flyers and we thought to ourselves, hey, if we learn a little more about how planes fly and how a plane crash is highly improbable, maybe we'll be less anxious about flying in the future. We are in no way experts in the field of aviation. We realize that what we discuss in each episode is a tragedy in the lives of many people out there. Someone's brother or sister mother or father lost their life or were seriously injured, we in no way want to be disrespectful or insensitive about that reality. We just see these plane accidents as incidents of the past, as historical events worth discussing. It's interesting to us how each event led to improvements in safety that have made the air travel system as safe as it is today. Just a heads up for you all, like some of our previous episodes, there is some foul language in this episode. But it's what really happened, and I think you'll all find it interesting. You ready to get started, Tess? Sure. Are you referring to when I curse you out later in the episode? Yeah, that just happens every episode, and I want people to be prepared. Usually we edit it out, but this time we're going to run it. We're going to leave it in. (laughs) Qantas Flight 72 was a scheduled daytime flight from Singapore Changi Airport to Perth Airport in Australia on Tuesday, October 7th, 2008. We've really been focused on the entire Airbus product line as of late. If you've listened to our recent episodes, you'll recall TAM Airlines Flight 3054 was an Airbus A320. Aeroflot Flight 593 was an Airbus A310. Today's flight, Qantas Flight 72, was an Airbus A330-303. As you might remember from our previous little history lessons, Airbus introduced its first airliner, the A300, to the commercial market in 1972. During the 1970s, Airbus develops a number of different designs for future aircraft. 
basically different versions or offshoots of the A300. In 1983, the wide-body A310 is released. In 1988, the first narrow-body airliner for Airbus, the A320, is introduced. And during the 1980s, Airbus decides that after they release their first narrow-body aircraft, the A320, for their next move, they're going to focus on designing and manufacturing another wide-body airliner like the A300 and the A310. Airbus wants to create a plane with greater range than their previous wide-body airliners. They envision their next wide-body aircraft as the front-runner to replace the aging L-1011 Tri-Stars and McDonnell Douglas DC-10s in the fleets of airlines around the world. This new plane would have the same vertical stabilizer and rudder as the A300-600. However, it would have two very powerful state-of-the-art turbofan engines that helped increase range to 6,350 nautical miles. Each airline that ordered this new plane got to customize their plane by selecting between three different engine manufacturers. Airlines could choose Rolls-Royce, Pratt & Whitney, or GE Aviation. i take the Rolls-Royce. Rolls-Royce sounds pretty sweet. This new plane had increased cargo capacity, a digital fly-by-wire control system, side stick controls, and has a glass cockpit almost identical to the A320 cockpit. In the passenger cabin, there was eight abreast seating and economy, with two seats by one window, an aisle, a middle section of four seats, another aisle, and two seats by the opposite window. The plane would be 31 and a half feet longer than the A300, and the wingspan would be increased by just over 50 feet. This new Airbus plane was called, you guessed it, the A330. On March 12, 1987, the French airline Air Inter placed the first order for five A330s. The first A330 rolled out from the manufacturing plant on October 14, 1992. The A330 first entered service with Air Inter on January 17, 1994. As of present day, 1,497 Airbus A330s have been manufactured and delivered to airlines around the world. The A330 used for Qantas Flight 72 was manufactured in France in 2003 and delivered to Qantas on October 31st, 2003. So the plane was almost five years old at the time of the incident. The plane had 20,040 airframe hours and 3,740 flight cycles. The captain of Flight 72 was Captain Kevin Sullivan. Captain Sullivan, a former U.S. Navy fighter pilot, had 13,592 flight hours, 2,453 hours in the A330. The first officer of Flight 72 was First Officer Peter Lipset. First Officer Lipset originally flew helicopters in the Royal Australian Navy. He had 11,650 flight hours, 1,870 in the A330. The second officer of Flight 72 is Second Officer Ross Hales. Second Officer Hales was in his first year working for Qantas. He had 2,070 flight hours and only 480 hours on the A330. There were 297 passenger seats on the plane used for Flight 72, and all 297 passenger seats were full. There were 303 passengers on board, so those additional six passengers were three off-duty Qantas employees seated in non-passenger seats, one on the flight deck, two in the cabin crew rest area, and the other three passengers were infants seated with their parents. There were nine flight attendants, the three pilots in the cockpit, 
303 passengers for a total of 315 human beings on board Flight 72. Captain Kevin Sullivan, First Officer Pete Lipset, and Second Officer Ross Hales had flown together for the first time in their careers two days prior to Flight 72 on October 5th, 2008 from Brisbane to Singapore. The next day, October 6th, the flight crew went out for food and a few beers in the city. On the day of the flight, Tuesday, October 7th, 2008, the plan was for the pilots to fly Flight 72 from Singapore to Perth during the daytime, and then they were going to fly a return trip back from Perth to Singapore later that same day. Captain Sullivan and Second Officer Hales even left their luggage at the hotel in Singapore that morning because they were expecting to return to the same hotel later that night. When the flight crew arrives at Singapore Changi Airport, they go over their flight plan in the briefing room at the airport and decide to add a bit more fuel to the aircraft just in case of emergency. Learmonth Airport, located on the northwest coast of Australia, is selected as their alternate. Flight 72 is scheduled to be a four-hour and 45-minute flight to the south over Indonesia, then above the Indian Ocean and down the west coastline of Australia to Perth. As I said earlier, Flight 72 is a completely full flight. Several Qantas employees that were off-duty on holiday, taking advantage of the perks of working for an airline, are trying to catch a ride home to Australia from Singapore, but the plane is oversold in economy and seats are hard to come by. The crew boards the plane and performs their pre-flight checks. Soon afterwards, passengers board Flight 72, and every one of those 297 passenger seats on board the plane is filled. Oddly, the airport is strangely empty on this Tuesday morning. It only takes eight minutes for Flight 72 to push back from the gate, taxi, and reach the top of the runway ready for takeoff. At 9.32 a.m. on Tuesday, October 7, 2008, Qantas Flight 72 blasts down the runway at Singapore Changi Airport and takes off en route to Perth, Australia. For the first 29 minutes of the flight, Captain Kevin Sullivan flies the plane manually, aided by steering directions that pop up on his flight display. The climb out of Singapore up to cruising altitude is uneventful and normal. At 10.01 a.m., Captain Sullivan says, engaging autopilot one, and the flight computer takes over flying Flight 72. The auto thrust is engaged. The crew gets one minor alert in regards to an issue with a valve used to take pressurized air from the engine to use for the airplane's air conditioning system, but this is quickly and easily resolved. The pilots notice that storms are forming over Indonesia in the direction they're flying, so they slightly alter their flight plan to avoid the storm clouds as they head south towards Australia. 90 minutes into the flight, With clear weather ahead, the A330 at cruising altitude and the autopilot engaged, Captain Sullivan decides it's time for his break. He goes back to the pilot rest area to relax and watches an episode of Two and a Half Men. At 12.30 p.m., First Officer Lipsit calls Captain Sullivan over the phone to the pilot rest cabin and says, Hey, Captain Kev, you're back on. Captain Sullivan replies, Back in five. At 12.33 p.m., Captain Sullivan re-enters the cockpit and he playfully jabs his second officer on the shoulder, requesting his captain seat back. First officer Lipsit gives Captain Sullivan an update. Weather is fine at our destination and at our divert fields. 
Progress to Perth is showing an on-time arrival. We're maintaining the increased cruise speed to make up time, and we climbed to 37,000 feet while you were on your break. At this moment, Second Officer Hales excuses himself to use the lavatory. First Officer Lipset points out Learmonth, the location of the alternate airport to the left through the windscreen. First Officer is scheduled for an 80-minute break, and he gets up from his seat to exit the cockpit. Captain Sullivan says, Have a good rest, Pete. I'll call you up 30 minutes before our descent point. I have control. First Officer Lipset leaves the flight deck, and Second Officer Hales is still in the lavatory. The time is 12.39 p.m., and for a brief moment, Captain Sullivan is alone in the cockpit. Second Officer Hales requests re-entry into the cockpit, which is granted, and Captain Sullivan jokes with his second officer that's returning from the lavatory and says, Did you wash your hands? Second Officer Hales laughs, doesn't reply, and he sits down in the first officer's seat. Captain Sullivan says, No change, Ross informing his second officer that the flight conditions are the same as when he left. Both pilots then settle into their seats for what they expect will be a routine cruise on down to Perth. However, a few seconds later, at 12.40 p.m., three hours and eight minutes into the flight, the autopilot shuts off, and the autopilot disconnect warning reverberates through the cockpit. Captain Sullivan quietly utters shit to himself, and he asks his second officer to turn off the master warning light and audio alert, and the pilots turn on the second autopilot. Suddenly, overspeed and stall warnings start going off. The navigation display goes blank. The altitude and speed numbers on the captain's primary flight display start fluctuating like crazy, never holding a consistent volume. So in a matter of seconds, things are getting pretty chaotic in the cockpit. Something's gone haywire with the flight computer. The crew's getting these overspeed warnings saying, hey, you're going too fast, and simultaneously getting stall warnings saying, hey, you're going too slow. The speed value on the captain's display is bouncing all over the place. It's a quite confusing and hectic moment. And since he's getting these warnings and his speed indicator is inconsistent, Captain Sullivan disconnects the second autopilot and takes manual control of the plane. He uses his standby instruments and the speed values on the first officer's flight display for his information. At 12.41 p.m., presented with this perplexing situation in the cockpit, Captain Sullivan tells second officer Hales to call first officer Lipset back into the cockpit so he can help out. First officer Lipset's having a coffee in the forward galley of the plane, chatting with another Qantas employee. Passengers throughout the passenger cabin are relaxing after meal service, many of them without their seatbelts on, as it's been a smooth ride, clear weather, and the seatbelt signs off. In the rear of the plane, in the rear galley, flight attendant Fuzzy Maeva is hanging out with a few fellow Qantas employees. Diana Casey is a customer service manager, and her husband, Peter Casey, is a captain for Qantas that flies Boeing 737s. All three are having a nice talk while flight attendant Maeva is microwaving himself some food. In the cockpit, these overspeed and stall warnings won't quit blaring. In addition to these annoying alarms going off, on the ECAM, which is the Electronic Centralized Aircraft Monitor, the crew starts getting a whole host of fault and caution messages that are popping up on the display. Captain Sullivan, that's now flying the plane manually, is trying to figure out what the hell's going on. There's conflicting alarms, a batch of air messages, 
his speed and altitude on displays going nuts. But from his perspective, the plane's flying along normally. He can look out the window and see the plane's just humming along. He sees his altitude and speed on the first officer's displays normal. Second officer Hales is on the phone with first officer Lipset, informing him of the situation. As the second officer and first officer are talking over the phone, at 12.42 p.m. and 27 seconds, three hours and 10 minutes into the flight, Qantas Flight 72 suddenly and violently pitches downward. Throughout the passenger cabin, anything that wasn't tied down or buckled into a seat becomes airborne and slams into the ceiling of the plane. Flight attendant Maeva and Captain Peter Casey that were located in the rear galley are hurled into the plane's ceiling and are knocked unconscious. Passengers in the cabin that weren't wearing a seatbelt slam their heads into the ceiling, and as they do, overhead bins open up and luggage falls onto the passengers below. In the course of a few seconds, the ceiling of the plane looks like someone took 50 cinder blocks and intentionally flung them upwards trying to break through the top of the aircraft. A tremendous amount of damage is done to the interior of the plane from the bodies of passengers forced upwards from the sharp pitch down. In the cockpit, the heavy manuals of the flight library have become airborne and are thrown to the back of the flight deck. Captain Sullivan and Second Officer Hales use their hands to push against the instrument panel glare shield to keep their butts in their seats. Second Officer Hales says, shit, and Captain Sullivan pulls back on his side stick to try and bring the plane out of this sharp pitch down, but the plane doesn't respond. The ocean blue is seen out the windshield of the cockpit. Captain Sullivan, seeing he's getting no response from the A330, releases his grip on the side stick, allowing it back to center and then ever so gently starts reapplying backward pressure on the side stick again and finally gets the plane to respond. Captain Sullivan eases the plane back out of this pitch down, bringing Flight 72 back to level flight. As Flight 72 pulls out of this dramatic pitch down in the passenger cabin, everyone that was thrust into the ceiling suddenly crashes to the floor as normal gravity is restored. First officer Lipset, that was in the front galley, falls on the ground and mashes his face against the floor. Food trays and drink cups are broken and strewn throughout the galley area. In the rear galley, where gravitational forces were most intense, flight attendant Maeva has a compound fracture in his leg. Captain Casey sustains a head wound and his wife starts tending to him. Flight 72 lost 690 feet of altitude during this pitch down. In the cockpit, Second Officer Hales shouts, What the fuck was that? Captain Sullivan replies, It's the Prim, alluding to the primary flight control computer. Captain Sullivan says, Handing over, Ross, I'm putting on my shoulder harness. The captain takes back control of Flight 72, and Second Officer Hales puts on his shoulder harness as well. Both pilots are full of adrenaline due to the in-flight upset. So Captain Sullivan senses this and says to his second officer, Take some deep breaths, Ross. Hold it. Exhale. Keep breathing. Second officer Hales turns on the fasten seatbelt sign, gets on the PA and says, All passengers be seated and fasten seatbelts immediately. The time is 12.43 p.m. and the situation in the cockpit isn't vastly different from where they were prior to the pitch down. Alarms are still filling the flight deck. Fault messages are littering the display screens, one about the autopilot, another about the navigation computer, yet another from the primary flight computer. 
Captain Sullivan's trying to calm down and keep control of his plane. Flight 72 is under manual control, and Captain Sullivan eases the plane back to 37,000 feet as he and his second officer start addressing the litany of caution messages on their ECAM display. One of the tasks second officer Hales addresses is resetting the primary flight computer 3. When he switches off Prim 3, all the alarms in the cockpit finally go silent. After a few seconds, second officer Hales switches it back on, and at first all the flight control systems appear to be working normally. However, after a few seconds pass, the stall and overspeed warnings yet again start their familiar auditory assault on the pilots of Flight 72. As the captain and second officer are addressing their caution messages, Flight 72 starts vibrating slightly, as if another shift in flight might be on the immediate horizon. At 12.45 p.m. in 8 seconds, Captain Sullivan says, Don't you do it. Right before, for the second time, Flight 72 enters another pitch down. Screams fill the passenger cabin as the plane dips in the sky. It's round two on this wild roller coaster ride that absolutely no one signed up for. First officer Lipset, that's still in the front galley, senses the vibrations in the plane, guesses that another pitch down is coming, so he grabs his coworker by the waist and holds onto a railing for support. In the back galley, flight attendant Maeva and the Caseys are thrown into the ceiling again, and further damage is done to their bodies. Captain Sullivan pulls back on his side stick, but the plane doesn't respond to his inputs for a second time. The pilots of Flight 72 get another look of the Indian Ocean, and Captain Sullivan, understandably pissed by now, angry that he's getting no response from his A330, says, You fucking piece of shit. Captain Sullivan lets go of his side stick and then starts making baby inputs, and the plane starts responding to his commands again. He eases the plane back to 37,000 feet. Flight 72 lost 400 feet in altitude during uncommanded pitch down number two. Oxygen masks have dropped from the ceilings, and passengers are moaning, crying from the serious injuries they've suffered due to the unexpected drops. In the rear galley, flight attendant Maeva and the Caseys are seriously injured. A panicked passenger shows up in the rear galley with an inflated life vest around their neck. The passenger says, I must get out of the plane, I cannot breathe. It starts heading towards the emergency exit as though they might open the door. Not realizing that it's the inflated life vest around their neck that's making the breathing difficult, Diana Casey helps the passenger deflate the vest with a pen flight attendant Maeva orders the passenger back to their seat. Flight attendant starts shouting to all the passengers to secure seat belts and remove all items from the walkway if possible so people can exit the plane if the plane can get back on the ground. Back in the cockpit, Captain Sullivan notices that the automatic pitch trim wheel isn't moving, so he moves it manually and tells his second officer that the automatic trim isn't working. Overspeed and stall warnings are still sounding, and more fault messages fill up their displays. Second Officer Hale says, alternate law, protection lost. The captain tells Second Officer Hales to clear the message. Once again, Second Officer Hales alerts his captain that primary flight computer 3 has failed, and he asks if he should reset it again. Captain Sullivan replies, no, don't fuck with it. After reflecting on how they reset it previously, and it resulted in a second pitch down event. 
At 12.46 p.m., Captain Sullivan gives over control of the aircraft to Second Officer Hale so he can make an announcement to the plane. This is the captain. We are obviously having some problems with our flight control system. Please remain seated with your seatbelts fastened. I'll get back to you shortly. Second Officer Hales calls the front galley and says, Tell Pete he can come up now. We'll watch him and open the door. Captain Sullivan disconnects the auto thrust and says, Manual thrust, Ross. Second Officer Hales hits the emergency cancel button to try and silence the various alarms in the cockpit, but the alarms won't stop. He hits the button again and again, but the alarms just keep sounding off. At 12.47 p.m., First Officer Lipsit re-enters the flight deck and says, It's a shit fight out there. I think I broke my nose. Captain Sullivan replies, Congratulations. Sit down. Strap in. We're in trouble. Second Officer Hales moves to the seat behind the captain and First Officer, while First Officer Lipsit takes his seat to the right of the captain. Captain Sullivan then fills in First Officer Lipsit on the current situation in the cockpit, that those two drops were computer-commanded and he couldn't stop them. First Officer Lipsit updates his fellow pilots on the situation in the passenger cabin. Passengers have sustained serious injury. First Officer Lipsit says, Declare a mayday, Learmonth, suggesting that they declare an emergency and divert to their alternate airport, which is located close by. Captain Sullivan replies, No, Pete. Let's start with a pan, not a mayday. Degraded flight controls and injuries in the cabin. At 12.49 p.m., First Officer Lipsit radios, Melbourne Center, pan, 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 Qantas 72, Qantas 72, Qantas 72, experiencing flight control problems and we have injuries in the cabin, require diversion to Learmonth and tracking direct to Learmonth. Melbourne Center responds, Qantas 72, Melbourne Center, pan acknowledge, track direct Learmonth, clear to descend to 35,000 feet. Thinking of the conditions in the passenger cabin, Captain Sullivan says to his second officer, Ross, try and get a damage report from the cabin. First Officer Lipset is busy trying to find the digital charts to Learmonth to aid in approach and landing, but the dysfunctional computer prevents him from accessing the charts. Fortunately, the weather is clear, and they have a visual on the airport below. At 12.51 p.m., First Officer Lipset requests permission to descend, and Melbourne Center replies, Qantas 72, roger, clear to leave controlled airspace. Second Officer Hales is talking over the intercom with Diana Casey, and she informs him that there are severe injuries in the rear of the cabin, broken bones, lacerations, and maybe some spinal injuries. There's damage to the cabin and ceilings. When Captain Sullivan hears of this, he says, that's it. First Officer Lipset asks, Mayday? The captain, reasoning that there's life-threatening injuries on board, confirms, Mayday. At 12.54 p.m., First Officer Lipset radios, Melbourne Center, Mayday, 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 Qantas 72, Qantas 72, Qantas 72, flight control problems, and we have significant numbers of serious injuries on board, tracking direct Learmonth. Melbourne Center radios back, Qantas 72, Melbourne Center, Mayday acknowledge, track direct Learmonth. In the passenger cabin, Diana Casey sees two young sisters that are panicked and flying alone, so she takes a nearby seat and gets them to start singing, row, row, row your boat, to try and calm them down. Casey also encounters an older man with a gash in his head, and she gives him a pillow to keep pressure on the wound to try and stop the bleeding. Captain Sullivan starts reducing power to the engines to commence Flight 72's descent towards Learmonth. 
as the plane starts losing altitude, Second Officer Hales notices that his ears start popping. At this point, the flight crew realizes that the automatic pressurization for air in the cabin is offline. They'll have to handle pressurization manually during the descent. Second Officer Hales takes over responsibility for this task. The second officer also sifts through piles of paper on the flight deck floor, searching for the charts to Learmonth since the digital files are unavailable. Melbourne Center radios over, Qantas 72, emergency services need 30 minutes to prepare for your landing at Learmonth. Adjust arrival time accordingly. Captain Sullivan replies to Melbourne, Roger, we will need at least 30 minutes to prepare too. Melbourne responds, Copy Qantas 72. Say souls on board and any dangerous goods. Captain Sullivan answers, 315 souls on board, no dangerous goods, Qantas 72. Now the time is 12.57 p.m. Alarms are still incessantly sounding in the cockpit. As Flight 72 descends towards the earth, the pilots grow worried about another pitch down that it could be in the deck of cards. They don't know why the previous two drops occurred, but when the last two happened, they were at 37,000 feet and had time and space to pull out of the drop. As they get closer to the planet, they're understandably worried that if another one happens, they're going to be a lot closer to the ground and could possibly impact the terrain. Like a soccer coach at halftime, leading a team down a couple goals but with plenty of fighting spirit left, Captain Sullivan decides it's time for a review pep talk. He says to his pilots, Okay, guys, listen up. We're diverting to Learmonth. We are flying, we have engines, and we'll keep flying. But my plan is to enter a holding pattern over the airfield, and we'll continue to descend and prepare for our landing as we circle. We have flight control problems, so we'll do a control check at 10,000 feet with the flaps extended. If the plane's okay, we'll fly the instrument approach for runway 36. I will nominate instrument procedures for a manual landing. We're stuck with manual thrust and manual pitch trim, and I'm in manual control. They need 30 minutes to prepare for us, so let's take it slow and continue our prep. Questions? Both First Officer Lipsit and Second Officer Hales nod in agreement with the battle plan. Then Captain Sullivan drops the following gem. Looks like I picked a bad day to quit sniffing glue. Everyone in the cockpit laughs at his reference to a line from the movie Airplane, and the tension in the cockpit drops a couple notches, so mission accomplished, Captain Sullivan. At 1 p.m. on the button, the captain makes an announcement to the cabin. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the captain speaking. Obviously, we're having some problems with our flight controls. Also, I'm aware that we have some serious injuries on board, and we need to access medical treatment urgently. We are diverting to Learmonth Airfield near Exmouth. We should be on the ground in about 15 minutes. Please remain with your seatbelts fastened and we'll be on the ground as soon as possible. Thank you for your attention. Flight 72 starts descending below 25,000 feet at a rate of 800 feet per minute. Learmonth Airport is an uncontrolled airport, just like the airport at Steamboat Springs from the Rocky Mountain Airways episode a few shows ago. There's no tower, so you have to communicate with other aircraft in your area to keep separation, and you have to use your own judgment about when it's safe to make your approach and landing. First Officer Lipset makes regular announcements over the radio as Flight 72 descends, just advising all aircraft in the area of the presence and intentions of Flight 72. Captain Sullivan decides the safest and quickest path for Flight 72 is to fly a precautionary emergency landing approach 
where the plane enters a consistent corkscrew left turn, maintaining speed the entire time in case of another pitch down event, but also losing altitude rapidly so they can get this plane on the ground as soon as possible and get the injured in the passenger cab and the medical attention they desperately need. First Officer Lipset makes a call over the satellite phone to Qantas Maintenance to try and troubleshoot the air messages they've been getting. A flight attendant calls into the cockpit, should I prepare the passengers and crew for an emergency evacuation or will it be a normal landing? Captain Sullivan responds, normal landing, as normal as it can be at this stage. At 1.15 p.m., 33 minutes after the first pitch down, Flight 72 is flying through 20,000 feet. First Officer Lipset says to his co-workers, I can't leave you guys alone for a second. While the pilots are riding a wave of adrenaline from the emergency, trying to tamp down their panic response the best they can. Pilots attempt to load a global navigation satellite system approach into the computer, but it won't load, so Captain Sullivan calls for a visual approach, 10-mile final, using visual procedures. He asks his pilots to help him with distance and recommended altitudes on the final approach. Captain Sullivan also takes time to consider how this landing will be unusual to a typical landing. Since the Airbus A330 is going to be flying at a higher speed, he decides that they'll use a lower flap setting. Manual brakes will be used because the automatic braking system isn't working. Some of the spoilers are inoperational and automatic thrust is offline as well, so the thrust of the engines will have to be under manual control. Captain Sullivan asks his pilots to calculate the landing distance for this odd configuration the plane will be flying, with only some systems operational, and both First Officer Lipset and Second Officer Hales arrive at the same conclusion that Learmonth Airport will give them enough room to land and slow safely. The captain then gives a summary of their approach to his co-pilots, explaining that his goal is to keep speed high in case another pitch down occurs. He ends the brief with, It will be visual procedures for a visual approach. Manual flying, manual thrust, manual pitch trim, manual braking, manual fucking everything. The flight crew goes through their approach checklist, and they decide to shut down the primary flight computer number three. First Officer Lipset says, Approach checklist complete, and Captain Sullivan says, okay, let's have a look at the runway and parking apron. Passing through 11,000 feet, Captain Sullivan calls for flaps one. First officer Lipset selects flaps one. A minute or so passes, and Captain Sullivan calls for flaps two. First officer Lipset sets the speed at 180 knots and selects flaps two. Captain Sullivan asks his pilots, you guys happy? Both the first and second officers give him a thumbs up. Captain Sullivan gets on the plane's PA and tells passengers that Flight 72 is on approach and all passengers must remain seated with their seatbelts securely fastened. At 1.25 p.m., Flight 72 flies through 5,000 feet as stall warnings, overspeed warnings continue to relentlessly ring out in the cockpit. First Officer Lipset makes another radio announcement to anyone in the area that Qantas Flight 72 is landing on runway 36 at Learmonth and is on final approach. At 1.28 p.m., Captain Sullivan says, gear down, and his first officer drops the landing gear. At 2,000 feet, Captain Sullivan asks his first officer, aren't you satisfied that we aren't stalling? First officer Lipset replies, yeah, Kev, I'm happy. At 1,500 feet, Captain Sullivan calls for flap three, final flap, landing checklist. 
The gear is confirmed down. Flaps three. Spoilers armed. Seatbelt siren is on. As the plane passes through 1,000 feet, the captain says, manual braking, go around altitude 3,000 to remind his pilots that they'll climb to 3,000 feet if anything goes wrong. First officer Lipset says, 500 feet, stable. Captain Sullivan gently lifts the nose of the aircraft as it descends slowly towards the earth. At 1.32 p.m. on October 7, 2008, Qantas Flight 72 touches down safely on runway 36 at Learmonth Airport. Captain Sullivan pulls the throttles to reverse thrust, and shouts of jubilation and applause fill the passenger cabin. Flight 72 comes to a stop on the tarmac, and Captain Sullivan says to his pilots, So a little excitement and an otherwise dull day. All three pilots clasp hands in the cockpit in relief. Flight attendants pop up as the plane stops, grabbing first aid kits and assisting passengers. Emergency personnel ascend the air stairs of the A330 and start attending to the injured. Captain Sullivan mentions to maintenance that there are two dogs in the cargo hold that need to be let out before it gets too hot. Western Australia's Emergency Operations Center coordinated rescue efforts, getting two ambulances, a doctor, and two nurses from nearby Exmouth to meet Flight 72 upon landing. Captain Sullivan walks into the main cabin. He gets on the intercom and says, Ladies and gentlemen, this is the captain. Welcome to Learmonth. This comment is met with loud applause and cheers from the passengers. The captain tells everyone to remain seated so medical teams can administer care to the wounded. A makeshift medical facility was set up quickly in the small terminal at Learmonth before 20 people were taken to Exmouth Medical Center located about 25 minutes away from Learmonth Airport. It took about 45 minutes to get all the passengers off the plane. The entire flight crew huddled on the plane after all the passengers had left and the stressed out drained crew had a small glass of champagne to try and calm down. There were 12 serious injuries on Flight 72. 41 additional injuries required visits to the hospital, but these people were not admitted. 66 other passengers and crew members sustained minor injury. There were no deaths out of the 315 on board. A Boeing 767 and 717 were sent to Laramont to carry passengers on to Perth later that evening. So Tess, what do you think about the story so far? What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low, net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. I love it. I thought it was a textbook example of good CRM. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought Captain Sullivan in particular did a phenomenal job of communicating with his co-pilots and the passengers aboard and keeping everyone at ease. I thought he struck a really good balance between professionalism and also injecting a little humor and levity into a stressful situation. Yeah, I think he helped get his first officer and second officer in a good mindset. If they saw like the superior guy was joking, they're like, oh, well, things must not be that bad. I can relax. Exactly. I also really loved how he kind of came in with a game plan. He briefed everyone early on, but then he was constantly checking in to make sure if his co-pilots were good with mm-hmm. how things were going. Like he might have missed something and wanted to get you know everybody's perspective. Exactly, which we've seen can have lethal consequences with other accidents. If you don't do it. Yeah. yeah. Well, now it's time for our secret interview. Oh. Today on PCPC, we are honored to be joined by the captain of Qantas Flight 72, 
an author of an excellent new book, No Man's Land, The Untold Story of Automation and Qantas Flight 72. Let's welcome to the show Captain Kevin Sullivan. How are you holding up, Captain? Hi, Michael. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me uh, to your show. I appreciate it. No, that's great. Are you still living in Australia? Yes, I live in Sydney, and I've been here for quite a long time now, so over half my life, so I'm, uh, I'm an Australian citizen now. Um, do you, how's 2020 been treating you? Have you spending a lot of time inside? Do you have any hobbies or interests that you're into that are helping pass all this time? I'm always busy. I'm, I'm never bored. So yes, I've been, uh, I've been keeping quite busy and, um, for me, it hasn't really affected me, uh, as much as most people, because as we'll, we'll probably talk about later, uh, I've, I've been in self-isolation ever since this flight, uh, happened mm-hmm. and the, the, and dealing with the aftermath. So, People say, "How are you doing?" I'm saying, "Well, it's fine." But what I've been doing for the last twelve years, so it's it's not too bad. Yeah. Well, you wrote a book, No Man's Land. In your book, No Man's Land, you touch upon your extensive history in aviation prior to becoming a commercial airline pilot for Qantas. Seems like you were interested in planes from an early age. Do you remember when you first knew you wanted to be a pilot? Yes, I do. Uh, my father was uh, in the U.S. Navy and based in San Diego. And it was a Armed Forces Day. He took my brother and I down to Naval Air Station uh, North Island. And the Blue Angels were flying that day. And I'd never seen them before. But they came by. uh, They were flying the F-11 Tiger. They came by in diamond formation at about 50 feet over the crowd. Whoa. And... And I just said, I have to be in one of those planes. <laughs> I don't know what it's, whatever it takes. I, that's what I want to do. I, it just was something that uh, clicked in my head. And that's the path. I was on that path and I was six years old. Man. So you had this dream when you're six years old and you made it happen. How did you get your training in aviation again? Uh, I went to, uh, I went to the University of Colorado uh, and I was in Navy uh, ROTC scholarship and I was doing aerospace engineering, so they were paying for that. Uh, but also they had a program, which was a flight introductory program, uh, in which they paid for a portion of your private pilot's license. So in between all my workload of engineering subjects, I would get up at 5 o'clock and go out to the local airport and fly for an hour, hour and a half, and assess to 150, and eventually... Uh, I got my private license um, while I was still at university. So that was the start. And from there, once I graduated, it was off to Pensacola and continue as a naval aviator. Nice. So you got uh, you were in the Navy. And I believe in your book, you mentioned that you were in like Top Gun as well. That's pretty cool. That's, uh, yeah, later, later on. Uh, basically, my career, once I got my wings, um, I was, uh, a group of us were held back. This was 1977, 1978, it's pretty ancient times, but this was the first period where airlines were expanding and all the military pilots were going, you know what, I, I got a family, I think I'll stop here and I'll get an airline job. Mm-hmm. So we were, we were losing, the, the Navy, the Air Force, everybody was losing instructor pilots. So instead of allowing this, my graduating class to go to the fleet, they said, look, here's, Here's a special deal. We'd like you to stay behind, uh, instruct for a year and a half, and the deal is you get to choose where you want to go at the end of that year and a half. So 
I chose the F-14 and uh, did two cruises uh, in VF-114 fighting aardvarks. And in between, I was selected to go to Top Gun. And yeah, and then eventually I came to Australia as the first U.S. Navy exchange pilot to the Australian Air Force. Mm -hmm. And the Australian Air Force was transitioning from the French Mirage III fighter to the F-18 Hornet. And the F-18 is a Navy plane. Uh, they never had a, really had a uh, exchange with the Navy pilot here. But because the F-18 was a Navy pilot or a Navy air, aircraft, they asked for a Naval Exchange Officer. And I was that man. Nice. So you, it sounds like you at age six said, I want to be, I want to do that. And then you did precisely that. That's pretty amazing. I don't know too many people that just basically achieve their dream of when at age six. <laughs> I think, well, a lot of, a lot of people that, that are my friends were the same. They said, yeah, at this age, I knew I wanted to do this. And they've, there's, there's a few people out there that have done it. So, um, but yeah, I think it is, it is rare these days to do that, but um, it can be done. You're evidence of it. So uh, you uh, were, were part of this exchange program in Australia, and then eventually you decided you didn't want to um, continue doing that, and you took a job as an airline pilot with Qantas. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. When did you start working for them? In 1986 was when I was uh, hired, and... At that time, Qantas just had 747 jumbos in their fleet. Mm -hmm. So that was the first airplane um, that I was uh, endorsed on. Uh, and we all start as a second officer. A second officer is like an in-flight uh, in relief pilot. Uh, and we also were trained on the engineering panel of the 747. So uh, it was quite, quite a, 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 an interesting transition from flying F-14s or Mirages to flying a big airplane that had a, a massive engineering panel that the engineer, basically the flight engineer, did a lot of management of the fuel system and other systems uh, on the plane. Mm -hmm. Did uh, What was the transition like? I mean, was, it, was the stress the same? Or did you feel like going from being a fighter pilot to being a commercial airline pilot was a kind of step down in your stress level? Well, I, I suppose if you talk to a Formula One pilot, or sorry, a Formula One driver that retired and then sort of drove a bus or a truck, uh, and you say, "How? Oh, what's that like?" You know, transitioning from a, a McLaren to a uh, a bus, he'd probably say, "Yeah, things happen a little bit slower, uh, but there's more people, responsibility, uh, more crew coordination required, etc." So. That's what I found. But again, in the Navy, we we're assessed not primarily as pilots. We're assessed as leaders and managers. So you learn those skills um, and you are assessed on those skills. So I took that uh, experience with me uh, into my airline job, which uh, I had to use quite extensively uh, later on as we discuss what happened on the Qantas Flight 72. But that... Um, basically it was, yeah, I think it's much easier. Everything's on autopilot. Things are more structured compared to flying off an aircraft carrier uh, at night in pitching deck and in-flight refueling and going on mission, et cetera. It's completely different. Yeah. Except 
you're in an airplane. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Well, um, as far as the lifestyle went, did you find like days that you showed up to work and on your work schedule was a particular city that you'd have an internal like, yes, I get to go there. Did you enjoy the lifestyle? Was there certain cities you looked forward to going and having a layover? Yeah, it certainly was a lifestyle job. That's the way I describe it. Uh, it was a lifestyle job. And when I first joined, uh, Qantas was flying all over the world, especially to Europe. And those trips would be 14 days away. And every place that we stopped, uh, we would get two or three days off. It was, uh, you know, if you talk to anybody from Pan Am or TWA, it would have been the same thing. The scheduling was such that we didn't fly um, every day like now. Mm -hmm. But um, I I suppose my favorite uh, destinations were in Japan and um, we flew extensively into some very small airfields in Japan uh, when I was on the 767, and particularly Sapporo uh, in Hokkaido is a magnificent place to visit and have a couple days, especially in the winter. <laughs> yeah, that sounds nice. You get to see the world and got to have cold beers all over the world in between work. And yeah, you have to learn how to order beers in every different language. That's, <laughs> that was the international pilot's uh, challenge. <laughs> That's an important thing to have. Where, where would you be without that? That's right. <laughs> well, uh, let's talk about Qantas Flight 72. I assume when you're heading into work on October 7th, 2008, it was just like a routine day like any of the other thousands of days you were going to work. Is that correct? Yes, so you're the pilot in command, and you take off from Singapore. Everything's pretty much routine. You take your break, watch a little TV and relax. Then you come back to the cockpit, and what happens? Uh, yeah, and again, there's uh, a lot of detail in No Man's Land about what happened, but I'll try and give you a summary without giving away too much of the, the plot of, this, of the book. But um, yes, I came back to the flight deck, uh, at that point, we were probably less than 100 miles uh, over the ocean to the northwest of the West Australian coastline, and uh, where there were three pilots. Uh, I took my seat from one of the relief pilots and did a basic handover takeover with uh, the first officer who was going to do his break, and... Um, The second officer went to the toilet. When he came back, he sat down. So I was alone for probably 30 to 45 seconds. When he came back, he strapped in. Um, I again went through my uh, flight instrument, checked and informed him there's no changes. And as soon as he strapped in, the autopilot disconnected. Mm -hmm. And that's that's not a big deal. You just use the other autopilot, which I did. Yeah. But then we started getting... Uh, stall and overspeed warnings and my instrumentation started to become unreliable. Now that's not a big deal because I've had some similar things uh, happen on a 767. Um, I'm in an Airbus A330 now and it's a fly-by-wire plane and everything is controlled by computer and fly-by-wire means there's no direct link between the pilot and the control surfaces. Mm-hmm. Uh, a flight control computer is going to move uh, the controls for you. 
Yeah, uh, so everything you, everything you have to do is like you have this middleman kind of that you have to go through. Yeah, but it's the brain of the airplane. So it's a unique um, partnership because these flight control computers are very powerful and they've been programmed to keep the airplane safe mm-hmm. within its operating envelope. Anyway, now it's telling me uh, you're stalling and overspeeding. And, well, I can look outside. It's daylight. We're not in cloud. It's a beautiful day. Mm-hmm. No turbulence. And I'm saying, well, this is not this is not real. But we start trying troubleshooting, trying to find out what why why this is happening. And I know it's not icing, which has happened um, in other accidents and incidents, uh, especially on the Airbus, um, because we're not in those conditions. So I'm a little bit confused, but I'm not uh, upset because there are no warnings from the manufacturers to say, hey, if you get these, start getting these warnings, uh, the plane's going to move unless you do something. Yeah. Uh, so unfortunately, there was no procedure to do something at that time. Uh, this was a unique uh, event and a, a, a complex, unique failure. Anyway, after connecting the second autopilot, uh, listening to these warnings, looking at my flight instruments, uh, I determined that I had unreliable speed. And basically, unreliable speed is a memory procedure to say, okay, turn the autopilot off, turn the auto thrust off, turn the flight directors off. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as I was doing that, I, so I did disconnect the autopilot. So I was hand flying at 37,000 feet, which not many people do yeah. <laughs> in routine operations, uh, but this was not routine. And so I removed the automatic pilot. Um, and in the course of continuing to troubleshoot and try and figure out what's happening, I felt the plane move. And oh, man. I gripped the stick. I'm going, what's going on? Next thing, the plane's pitching down. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not diving. It's, it's pivoting. It's pitching down. Uh, and it's generating so much negative G that my co-pilot and I have to brace ourselves against the glare shield. Yeah. Uh, as we're as we're descending, and I'm getting a nice big view of the Indian Ocean in my windscreen. Mm-hmm. And and I, what am I going to do? Instinctively, I'm going to pull back. I pull back, and nothing happens. So now I've got a choice to make here. Do I keep holding onto the stick because I'm locked out. Yeah. The plane, the flight control computers are protecting me as it turns out. They're protecting me from the stall, the high angle of attack that it perceives we're experiencing, mm-hmm. but that I know we're not. So I have a choice. Do I hold onto the stick or do I let go? And in the course of my U.S. Navy uh, fighter training, we do an out of control course. Uh, in a T2 Buckeye, and we we do upright spins, inverted spins, Lamshavox, uh tail slides, zero airspeed recoveries, accelerated departures. We throw this airplane around, and we learn how to recover in an out-of-control situation. And the first thing you do is neutralize controls. Mm-hmm. And out of my subconscious, I'm pulling the stick back here in this Airbus. We're going down, and I let go. I release my pressure on the stick. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and what that does is the stick, the control stick on the Airbus is not a conventional arrangement. The control stick is basically you are setting, the pilot is setting a trajectory. So you, let's say you want to climb, you pull the nose up and release. So the, plane, the, auto, or the flight control computers will move the elevator for you, mm-hmm. and then it will maintain that trajectory. So if I'm pulling back on the stick and it's locked out, and then the computers say, okay, you got it back now, Kev. Yeah. What's going to happen? The plane is going to climb at maximum uh, authority that I'm commanding through my control stick. Mm-hmm. So by letting go of the stick, at least when it did uh, give me control, whenever that was going to be, I was in a neutral command um, situation. So once it did continue uh, complete its pitch down uh, maneuver and gave me back control, and how do I know that? Well, I didn't know unless I moved the stick. Yeah. So okay, now I've got it. All right, but we're now we're diving, uh, not terribly badly. I recovered very gently mm-hmm. because I know in the cabin there are going to be people on the ceiling. Uh, that's that's how serious the uh, G force um, was that was generated by the flight control computers. So mm-hmm. I imagine in that moment you must have been like full of adrenaline too, and to keep your wits about you is pretty impressive. And then this is yeah, the, the, you know, the, your body's fight or flight. Um, release or uh, physiological um, process, which we can't really control, kicks in because I'm under threat. I'm, I'm going down towards the Indian Ocean. My control stick is locked out and I'm holding on for dear life just like all the passengers are. So I've basically become uh, an observer, even though I'm the pilot in command. Now that's a pretty helpless place to be. Yeah, And to see that the ocean may come up. I actually asked the question for a nanosecond, you know, is this how my life's going to end today? Ugh. So once, once you have that thought, mm-hmm. your, your, your body response kicks in. Now your heart rate's going to go through the roof. Um, you're going to stop. You're going to try and stop breathing because you're in startle response. Um, you're going to be tense. Your blood flow, all sorts of things happen physiologically to your body when you're in this uh, fight or flight. Some people freeze. Some people run like crazy. You know, it's uh, some people scream. Mm-hmm. All these things um, I'm confronted with, and I have to now try to de-escalate my body mm-hmm. <laughs> from where it's put me and start thinking again. So it doesn't allow you to be a rocket scientist at, at that point in time. You actually have to try to lower your heart rate, low, force breathing. And I, I go into detail about doing that for me and also to try and get my first officer, my, my, my co-pilot, back uh, in a coherent and operable condition from his body. Mm-hmm. So um, anyway, we recover. I know there's going to be problems in the back. Um, we climb back up. Uh, my second officer says, what the F was that? Mm-hmm. And I said, it's the computers. It's not me. I didn't do it. And so that's the only thing I knew at that time. Yeah. Anyway, we tried to troubleshoot. Um, the cabin's calling us. I can't talk to them. I'm too busy. And then 
once we got to, back to 37,000 feet, it happened again. So it's happened twice. I can feel it happening again. I know if I try to stop it with my stick, pulling back, it's not going to happen. Yeah. So I did a half-hearted full, full back stick deflection as we're going down, but I release again. Mm-hmm. And now people say, are you, were you frightened? I said, no, I was really, really angry. <laughs> yeah, I, I got so angry. I got so angry that this was happening, that the plane can do this, but I didn't know about it. And when you look at the 737 MAX accidents, they didn't know that this could happen to them, that their particular failure with the MCAS system could happen. So here I am now, and we'll get to it, but now I'm in no man's land. Yeah. <laughs> and what do I do? What's happening? I don't know. I'm, I'm an observer. The plane is not communicating with me. Uh, my instruments are still jumping up and down. Um, now we're getting this revolver of master caution uh, alerts. And it's just basically a ding, ding. Yeah. And something would come up on our screen. We'd both look at it. It would disappear. Then another one would come up. Ding. What was that? It's not staying there, so we can't action it. Mm-hmm. So now, now I'm I'm uh, the computers are working against me, and I describe it as basically I'm in a knife fight with this airplane, but it's already stabbed me twice, and now I have to survive, and um, that's basically what happened within about five minutes of me returning to the flight deck. Uh, that sounds like a nightmare. That sounds like just a nightmare of um, not having control over this. Thing that you're supposed to be in control of and no easy way to turn off the computer. Uh, yeah, and there is no on-off switch. You know, I knew it was false, but how do I, how do I say, you know what, you guys go to sleep. I know what I'm doing. <laughs> Computers go to sleep, leave me alone. But yeah. it's not designed that way. So there is no on-off switch. And basically, there is sort of a procedure now uh, and of course, the manufacturer said it's all fixed. We fixed those glitches. So, oh, that's yeah, good. So that's okay. good that it's permanently yeah. fixed forever. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. Yes, I go. Yeah. Okay. Great. Yeah. What so is, anyway, uh, why was it that when you initially pulled back on the side stick that the protection modes still have like precedence? Is that the way it works? When those protection modes kicked in, was it just like no matter what inputs we get, we're not listening? Yeah, pretty much. And if you're a software designer that's given the task to say, you know, if you are in a high angle of attack situation, if the pilots are in a high angle of attack situation, we're not going to let them touch, we're not going to let the control stick make the situation worse. So the plane will automatically correct, which is a pitch down. Um, the plane will, the, and the flight control computers, once they reach that limit, they will act. Mm-hmm. Uh, and usually, and it's designed for a real event, not a false uh, positive like this one was, and that's what makes it more was more puzzling for us because we weren't at high angle of attack, we weren't overspeeding, uh, we were in the steady steady state flight, and now we're not. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so protection mode activation takes priority over the pilots. Um, side stick and it's basically the flight control computers are the bouncers you know it's like hey you're you know you're misbehaving you've put the plane and everybody in uh harm's way so i'm gonna fix it now i'm gonna 
do whatever I have to do to return calm to the bar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe I have to kick you out for a while. Um, but it's the strong man, uh, the strong response built into the software to say, yeah, you, the, the, the aircraft, the airframe is under uh, threat and the computers will protect the airframe no yeah. matter what. Well, I think that's a good analogy, the bouncer. The bouncer kicked in when we didn't need him, apparently. Yes, I was just, and I, I talk about that in the, in the book. It's like you're sitting at the bar having a drink, and the next thing a bouncer comes up and slams your head against the, uh, the bar uh, and starts dragging you out. You go, well, what did I do? Yeah. <laughs> I'm just having my drink, you know, so. Well, that was the first half of our interview with Captain Sullivan. Thanks for listening to part one of Qantas Flight 72. Thanks to Captain Sullivan for chatting with us. We'll be back in a few days with part two. Hope you all hang in there. Thanks for the reviews on Apple Podcasts, and thanks for going to our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash pod. Hope you guys all have a great week. Work hard. Take care of yourselves. We'll talk to you again in a few days. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.